0: Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Blood ...and cried out to his Abba for deliverance. This is the week the human God is nailed to a cross, allowing the worst of the world to be done to him, passing through him in such a way as all evil is exhausted. This is the week the human God cried out in one breath, Why have you forsaken me? And in another, Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. This is the week the human God descends to hell and destroys death so that all might have new life. This is the week, and it is called Holy let us pray. Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here. Hallelujah. You are here. You are with us. You are for us. You are not against us. And on this holiest of holy days, may we be open and transparent before you. Lord, we do not want this day, this week, to have just rolled by uh, without us being affected, changed, transformed more into your likeness. So, Lord, I pray as we immerse ourselves in this story once more, that you would do that work of transformation in us. That you would inspire us, that you would put your spirit into us. So not only do we remember the story as an historical event, but we also remember it so that it might change us anew. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So of course, for uh, those in my profession, this is considered something of like the Super Bowl of sermons. The expectation is that I am going to give you a 30-minute gospel presentation. There will be some sort of altar call, and then on your way out, there will be a small baggie that has a pen, a sticker, and a get-to-know-us-more card in it. Um, I am not capable of that, (laughs) uh, nor do I have any interest in doing that. Um, It's not my job to save you. That's Jesus' job, and that's probably actually why we're here. Um, So we've been in this series uh, called The Human God, where we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, allowing Mark to tell us the story of Jesus um, in such a way that it it re-centers us on the truth of what God is really like. Um, And I said at the beginning of this series, that, in all transparency, I'm not a huge fan of the Gospel of Mark, uh, in the same way that, you know, The Lord of the Rings, the theatrical release, was great when it came out, but then they came out with the extended edition, and you're like, why would I watch the theatrical release? And that was always my attitude with Mark. You know, we've got the Gospel of Matthew, it's like the extended edition, it's just way better. But then halfway through this exploration, what I feel like the Lord's doing in my heart is saying, I need another analogy for Mark, that Mark is filet mignon. Uh, Mark is, it's lean, there's not a lot of fat to it, um, and it's really Delicious. It's 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 a beautiful cut. And you wouldn't do things with it that you would do with larger pieces of meat, but it's it is what it is, and if we allow it to be what it is, um, it speaks to something precious. And what we find the Gospel of Mark is continually in, uh, doing for us is helping us to recognize that Jesus at every point in the story is God all in and human all in. That there's it's not that Jesus kind of has his god-like moments where he says profound things and he heals people and he raises people from the dead. And then Jesus has a human moment where he's tired or thirsty or frustrated, whatever that might be. We, we often kind of convey that when we speak of Jesus, that Jesus had these like, God-like moments and then these human moments. But at every moment when we see Jesus moving through the world, we're saying, ah, yes, this is what God truly looks like. This is what God truly sounds like. When God enters into our story, this is the most God-like image that we have. But unfortunately for many of us in the Christian household, our vision of God is more influenced by Aristotle than it is by Moses, by David, uh, and by the Gospels. And so we're wrapping up this series uh, today and next week by exploring the final chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And allowing the story itself to inform us and to give us direction. So this is kind of my thesis for this Resurrection Sunday. That the human God does not dwell in death. But through his resurrection, he invites all creation to hope for new life. Early on, Christianity was considered a death cult by the pagans. Uh, Part of that was because we were big fans of martyrdom, um, which we've lost uh, almost entirely in our modern church, that we glorify those who are willing to die for the sake of Jesus. Now, most of us would think that would be absolutely insane that we would do that. And indeed, we find ourselves more fighting for our rights, fighting to dominate the narrative, rather than posturing ourselves like Christ, uh, willing to take the slings and arrows of the world, but to never lift a finger. In return. And the, the pagans, when they, when they perceived this early Christian community, they were struck by how often we talked about death. We talk about death a whole lot in the Christian household. Um, it's one of the reasons that we're not really a lot of fun at parties, uh, because we continually talk about death. Um, but the other thing was that we posit at the center of what we believe is this dead rabbi hanging on a cross. That this, for us, this is the greatest picture of what God is really like. And the other thing that I think was difficult for the pagan world to understand about the early church, and considering us a death cult, was that the other part of the narrative, that not only is this God died, but this God has raised to new life, they'd say, well, that simply doesn't happen. That's not the kind of thing that happens in this world. People don't just raise from the dead. And it was the early Christians, this beautiful death cult that was also a new life cult that insisted, yes, we know this is ridiculous. We know this is not the way that the world is supposed to work, but we're going to put this wild claim in the center of our faith, knowing how preposterous it sounds. And so we're going to read today Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. It's not particularly long, um, and we're going to see what it is uh, that God might be drawing out here where we see this this human God who does not dwell in death, uh, but through his resurrection invites all of creation, not just the human species, but all creation into new life. This is Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Siloam brought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. There's a couple of things uh, to note in this story so that we can really enter in and allow it to speak to us uh, what, what God intends. The first thing that I want to note here uh, is that this story centers on the women, specifically my goodness, I'm going to move this around front, let's see if this works, this is going to look weird, so if anybody has Photoshop and they can just like Photoshop this out of the photos, that would be great, let's give that a go, um, yeah, that's nice, okay. You know, in the ancient time, they didn't even have microphones, so technically we should be thankful here, but um, the first thing to note is this story centers on women. And what some scholars will say is that it's showing in a very subversive way that the women were the model disciples of Jesus. That when all of the men, the, the twelve and those who followed Jesus, abandoned him, that they, they ran away, that Peter denied him, et cetera, et cetera, it was the women who stood and attended to him the whole time. Can I get a little Okay, there, okay. We're allowed to be like at least a little bit feminist in here. We can do that. That's okay. Um, and it's, so it's interesting to know, one of the things that the gospel writers are showing us is it's the women that did not abandon him. You know, we see these stories that even at the foot of the cross, the women were there. Uh, they understood the call to follow. They understood the call to serve. And this is very important for us to recognize uh, because at the time, um, the, the, the official world, whether it was the Jewish world or the Roman world, did not accept the testimony of women. It was not admissible in court. Um, it was not uh, worthy of entering into a public conversation about historical claims or whatever it might be. Women uh, were not accepted uh, in their testimony. And so what the gospel writer here um, and in the other gospels is very subversely telling us is that the world is already changing. The, the, the systems that we so often have in our world of uh, who's in charge and um, who, who the system serves best these things are already subversively being undone into this new kingdom, this new world. And the fact that these women are now put front and center, and it's the story hinges upon their testimony, them testifying to what it is that they have seen, what they have experienced about the risen God, means that something is already changing. And we see these women bringing spices to the tomb. So what would have happened, this is a little bit gross, but again, historically, very interesting, and uh, kind of helps to live into the story, is that they put Jesus' body in a tomb, um, and he would be in that tomb for a, about a full year. And it's kind of a, it's a group tomb. There would be several bodies put in there. And after a year, as the body begins to decay, then they would have a second burial um, where they would put the body in the ground. And so you would embalm a body with lots and lots of herbs and spices to kind of prevent the smell Uh, from when you enter in and you're you're bringing in the the, uh, succeeding bodies. And so that's really what's happening here. And what's fascinating then is this means that as faithful as these women are, they believe Jesus is, in fact, dead, that they intended to embalm the body to prevent decay. And I choose to see that not as their lack of faith and not believing Jesus when he said what he was going to do, which happened to all of them, and which so often happens to us, is that they were faithful unto death, these disciples of Jesus, these women. They were faithful unto death. They were so willing to follow him all the way, quite literally, to the grave, to the tomb, um, in order to see him off. And what can we say of this stone? I think for me, symbolically, what Mark is kind of pointing us to, as we've seen time and again in this narrative, is that the stone represents the final works of those powers and principalities. Um, The the oppressive Roman Empire, um, the callousness of uh, the Jewish religious elite, um, because the system worked for them, everything worked in their favor, that there's this great threat of this new king and his kingdom advancing. which was the reason that Jesus was killed, because of this revolution that he was leading, this claim that he was a king, but also these powers and principalities that behind all of it, the Satan, the accuser, the embodiment of evil in this world is kind of pulling the strings, whispering into the ears of those in power that they need to do everything they can in order to protect the status quo. And so this stone represents all of the work of the powers and principalities. We would say the unholy trinity of the flesh, the enemy, and the world to end this threat of the kingdom of heaven that is advancing, that the stone is rolled over to say it is finished, but in a way that God is now dead. God has been conquered, and this world belongs to us. And so when the women come and they say, who will roll away this stone because it's too large for us? Sometimes we feel this same way when we see the world the way that it is because apparently it looks like the unholy trinity is alive and well, that we're still dominated by our flesh, our our ego fixations. Um, That we're still dominated by the Satan, the accuser, the demonic forces in this world that seem to be pulling the strings in the background. And we're still dominated by the world, these oppressive systems uh, of humanity that are intended to give power to some people and and keep other people powerlessness. And so perhaps even on this Sunday, you look upon the stone that is going to be in the way of the human God and to say, who could possibly move this stone? But the beauty is that no human could do this. It had to be God alone. There's two more interesting little points kind of at the end of the narrative, and then we'll move on. The first is that this man, it doesn't say this is an angel necessarily. We get that from some of the other gospels. But this this man of shining light says, go, tell his disciples and Peter he's going ahead of you into Galilee. And I think Peter is specifically mentioned here, not because Peter was going to be the leader necessarily, but I think this man, this angel, wants to make sure that Peter knows that his denial is not beyond redemption. And We've talked about this before. The only difference between Peter and Judas is that Peter stuck around long enough to be offered forgiveness from Christ. And you wonder sometimes what would have happened to Judas had he been able to encounter the resurrected Christ, that he, he, he was so overcome with guilt and shame for what he had done that he chose to end his life. And you wonder conversely if perhaps Peter found himself wrestling with suicide, that he had denied the human God, that he denied the Christ. And I think that specifically the invitation from this man, from this angel is, Make sure you tell Peter about this so he knows that his story is not beyond redemption. And he says he's going ahead of you into Galilee. I think the beauty of that is that it means that the story circles back to where it all started that Jesus first gathered these disciples in Galilee. It's where he began his ministry, where he began preaching, performing miracles on this march towards Jerusalem, towards the, the center of power in his world. But now it all circles back, and it comes back to where it all started, that something new is going to be inaugurated there in Galilee. So all of this, it does something to me to watch these women, faithful unto death, with Jesus, experience this man, this angel to witness this overwhelming strangeness that this isn't how things are supposed to go, to be sent off to tell this story to those who desperately need to hear it. And I think what it challenges in me is the way that so many of us have been trained to hold this faith of ours. I think what it invites me to consider is that our faith in Jesus is not a set of problems to be solved, but a confession to be lived in hope. You have to remember that Mark is the gospel of action. We see. Throughout the narrative, it's very fast-paced. It's always saying, immediately he got up, or immediately this happened, or at once these people showed up. Jesus doesn't talk as much as he does in the other Gospels. It's about action. It's about movement, this confrontation against the powers and principalities, and then the overcoming of evil and death through the cross. And I think what happens to us so often is that we fixate on the words so much That we think that our faith is just about a recitation of facts and claims that we tend to make about the world around us. And we've reduced the Christian story, we've reduced the narrative to just kind of this like cosmic uh, SAT exam in the sky that we have to be able to answer all the doctrinal questions correctly and then we're Christians. Like, St. Peter's sitting there, and he's got the bubble test out, and he's like, okay, explain transubstantiation. You're like, yeah. you know, or he says, do you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit in order to receive the impartation of tongues? And you're like, what? You know, that's so often what we think is really happening with our faith. There's a, a famous theologian, Carl Barton, he said, in Jesus, the word became flesh, and in the church, we've turned it back into words. Because that's what we think it is. There's all these problems that need to be solved. And I think when Mark and the other gospel writers, they all have this in common, they say very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, what they're making a claim to is like a a new day has dawned. This is a new era. Something new has burst into the world in the midst of the old. It's still about action. It's still about movement. It's about embodiment. It's about incarnation. It is about this truest thing that we know in the world bursting into the old world and rupturing it, dramatically changing the course of history. It's not about solving problems. It's not about us looking out into the world and seeing all these problems that need to be solved on, an, on a political level or a national level or even on a personal level and saying, oh, I need, you know, is this, again, another way that we tend to say it is like the Bible is this handbook for life. Like, here's my problem. So I take out, you know, the, the manual like I do for my 2014 Volkswagen Jetta. Again, y'all, I'm waiting for, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for that money for my, uh, my Hummer or whatever we're getting, Daniel. Come on. <laughs> My 2014 you know, Volkswagen Jetta, I pull out the manual because there's a headlight out, and I go to page 267, tells me how to replace the headlight. We go, oh, yes, thank you. And that's what we think the Christian faith is like. Specifically, it's what we think the Bible is like. That's how it's supposed to work. And then we get frustrated because when we read the Bible, and it really doesn't tell us what to do about nuclear pl- proliferation. You know, like the Bible doesn't tell us what to do about a lot of our modern issues because that was not what it was ever there to do, that's not what it is for, but we're so obsessed with just trying to solve problems that we forget that we are supposed to be confessing a narrative in the way that we live. My therapist said to me recently that hope is the deep conviction that life makes sense, even in the face of absurdity. It's the deep conviction that life makes sense even when it doesn't. And a lot of times we posit hope as the solution to a problem rather than recognizing the absurdity of life itself. But having this conviction that at the end of the day it will make sense, something will change, something will be illuminated, something will be transformed to convert absurdity into harmony, into peace, into truth. And I think about this so often with this crazy claim that we make at the center of our faith, that the human God died, uh, was buried, and was raised on the third day. I believe it as an historical account. And unlike some of the great apologists of the world, I can't prove that to you. And I'm also not very interested in proving that to you. I don't think that's interesting to prove that something happened once upon a time. I do believe it happened, but I take that by faith. The reason that I believe in this absurd story is I think it's the only story that makes sense of an absurd world. I think it is the only story that could possibly save the world to make sense of evil, to make sense of chaos, and to bring those things to light and to bring them back into harmony. I believe in this story because I see this confession, not just with the intellectual assertion of, like, here's all my doctrines and here's everything I believe. And oftentimes that's something I hear from people um, in our community outside. Well, you need to write down everything that you believe as a church and then put that on the website, then people can feel safe to enter in. No, no. First of all, most of us don't believe the same things. I think we're all fond of Jesus. That's about the biggest claim that I'd make for this church community. I, and even then, you know, some of us, we have our days with Jesus, right? But, like, that, that's, that's that kind of faith as intellectual assent. Like, let's agree on all the 95 theses and be a really great tribe, team, together, because we all wear the same, you know, jersey or whatever, and that's what makes us Christians. Um, which I think is a huge problem with the church today, but it's, it's for us rather to say we are on a journey of embodying the reality of the Christ. We are participating. We confess with our words, but also with our actions, with our faithful presence to one another. We are confessing that we believe this is the only story that makes sense of an absurd world. And even early on in the church, this was their confession. This was their conviction. This is part of what is known as the Apostles' Creed, you know, kind of going back to about the fourth century as we began to kind of look at what is this central narrative that we believe. And the Apostles' Creed says this, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. You see, these are not mere points of theology for us to memorize. The, the, the creeds are not doctrinal statements to decide, okay, these people are inside the the borders and those people exist outside the borders. That's not what was originally happening, but that's what we turned it into because we converted our faith from confession to intellectual assent. But they wrote the creeds, the word creed is to, to believe as this confession. When we confess this, We're saying, we believe this is the story that makes sense of the absurdity of the world that we live into. And our question becomes, why? Why are we invited into this story? Why do we gather like this? Why do we sing songs over one another? Why do we keep coming back to this ancient text, believing that it contains this inexhaustible wealth of wisdom, but that we also believe that it can be the place where we meet this risen God? It's because on some level you and I recognize that the Christ pattern, life, death, resurrection, is the pattern of all things. That's what we confess. That's what we believe. We believe that this story, the central narrative of the, the God who becomes human so that humans might become godlike, is the, is the central story. It holds all other stories. It is the pattern of all things, and we believe that Christ is leading the way into this resurrected life, into this new world, this new heavens and new world that we, that we are laying claim to. On Thursday, we had a, a Seder dinner at my house, um, and it was an absolute delight but what we came back to time and again in doing is saying we're remembering this story not because it's something just that happened once upon a time, but it's a story that continues to happen. And as we walk that path, remembering you know, Yahweh delivering the uh, Israelites out of Egypt from, from death into life, from slavery into freedom, we're recalling that story in a way that it becomes true again within us that we are the ones who are being delivered. We are the ones who are being moved from death to life and from slavery into freedom. It is the pattern of all things. And so when we participate in churchy stuff, what we're doing is that we're embodying this Christ narrative in a way that it becomes true again today. I believe Christ was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago. But I also believe that it's constantly happening that there's a constant life, death, and resurrection. And as I look upon many of you that I know, that I've sat with, I, I know you know this because I've seen it in you. I have seen you bear witness to death in your, in your life. I've seen you experience death, loss, devastation. I, have, I know you know that life. I've seen so many of you experience in your life that existential angst of Good Friday. And I know many of you have sat in that silence of Holy Saturday, wondering, is this true? Is this real? Was Christ really raised from the dead? Because I don't know if I'm seeing that in my life. You've taken that holy breath where you just pause and wonder, is any of this make sense? But I also know how many of you have experienced resurrection in your life. That the thing that was completely hopeless to you, the thing that brought you death, that enslaved you, and you never thought you were going to overcome, you've seen new life. You've witnessed resurrection. When everything had been exhausted, when evil and death have done their worst, and you're still alive, But your life is not like it once was. It is a resurrection life. It is a new life that you're living. I point to that. I say, this is why I believe in the Christ. This is why I believe in this story. We recognize that the Christ story is the pattern of all things. And we confess the story in such a way that we invite it into the present moment to become True again. Now, did any of you actually bring a real Bible with you today? You did? That's great. What does it say? There's a little asterisk right after verse 8. Yeah. Do you see the little asterisk or it's like all, sometimes it's all in italics, like verses 9 and on? What does it say about that? Yeah, I think it's, it's in, you got it? Okay, yeah, yeah. So, some more nerdry. Um, so let's see, we've done L-O-T-R. Um, we've mentioned uh, ancient Near East tri- like, uh, treatment of women. I'm getting, getting taken off all my boxes today. Um, so we're going to talk about those other verses next week, but it says that the earliest known manuscripts of Mark just end with verse 8, okay? Now, there are some scholars who say, Um, it probably is more like, you know, these are the earliest versions. It's not the original. We don't know. We don't have the original version of the Gospel of Mark. Maybe the last page was ripped out, and then later on, they amended it by writing on these these other endings that we're going to look at next week. Some people insist, no, this was just this, this. Mark decided the story ended here, and later on, when we had the other Gospels, they wanted to kind of expand the narrative. Whatever it is, which there, that's just, again, it's just interesting that that's part of Scripture, um, and in a really great way, I think, messes with a lot of our assumptions about how the Bible is supposed to work, when even the Bible's like, this bit here isn't in the earliest versions, and you're like, cool, okay. Or there's like other weird verses that you see like that um, throughout uh, the New Testament. If this was the ending that Mark uh, intended, that it just... Ends at verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. It's like, it just stops, and you're like, but, well, what's supposed to happen next? Like, where's Jesus? And did, did Peter ever, like, again, you have to come into this, like, open and clean and fresh uh, because we've all been so overly theologized that we are not arrested by these fantastic things in Scripture to go, like, well, did Peter ever receive the redemption? Did they go back to Galilee? Like, did, what happened? It just stops. And as I was meditating on this this week, I, I realized, what if the whole gospel of Mark is meant to be a parable? Because you, you know how Jesus tells parables. Like, Aesop's fables work where Aesop goes, all right, I really want to tell people not to be lazy, so let's write a story about, I don't know, an ant and a grasshopper. Everybody can relate to that. And blah, blah, blah. blah. Here's the story, and then you get to the theme. That's how a fable works. And fables are delightful. Um, that's not how parables work. And you've, you know, we've engaged with Jesus' parables a lot in, in our community. And a lot of times, Jesus' parables just stop. And you're like, wait, what? Like, what happened? Like, so, you know, did the older son reconcile with the younger son? Something like that, you know? And we see even in the, the Gospels testify, this, the, the disciples are coming to Jesus and, like, what the hell are you talking about, Jesus? What, what seeds and, like, ta- what are we talking about? And they're confused. And he's like, all right, I'll explain it to you. The rest of them, they have to just go out and figure out what this means. That's how a parable works. And I think, I just wonder if this is the intentionality of the way Mark tells us this story, is to convert his gospel into a parable. So we pause and we wonder, (coughs) what happens next? And perhaps Mark's point is, you are what happens next. I think we are invited to step in and take over the telling of the story by living as if the human God is no longer in the tomb, but has risen to the right hand of the Father. I think, like every good parable, because it just stops and there's just a lack of resolution and it wasn't tied up in a neat bow, we are invited into it to say, What happens next? Well, you have to decide. You have to decide where this narrative is going. And that verse 8, as it says, trembling and bewildered, the Greek words, see, we're getting the Greek words in there. We've got like every kind of nerdery in this one today. The words there are tromos and ecstasis. And what it quite literally means is the women were traumatized and ecstatic. Yeah, right? Get that on your Instagram, pop psychology. The women are tromos and ecstasis, traumatized and ecstatic. What does that mean? It means at once the women are severely disoriented. Because this is what trauma is, right? It's like our assumptions about how the world is supposed to work and what, like, what the narrative is and who I think that I am and who I think God is and what I think about other people, all of that gets ruptured and we are radically disoriented from our assumptions about life as normal. But then we are ecstasis, we are ecstatic, that we are called to transcendence, to believe, to hope against hope that life does, in fact, make sense. So these women were sent away, traumatized, disoriented from the world the way that they thought it was. And they were ecstasis, they were ecstatic, they were called to a transcendence to believe that things can and will be better, to believe that life will make sense. They needed to be disoriented in order to be reoriented. They needed to be disillusioned so they could be caught up in the beautiful narrative of the Christ in resurrection life. And so all of their assumptions are rattled, even as they were faithful unto death. And so the challenge for you is, how are your assumptions? in your assumptions of what life is like. Have you accepted the world the way that it is? Have you sunk into a despair to say, this is all I am and no more? Do you need to take up the end of Mark's gospel and be a little bit tromos? to be a little bit disoriented from your assumptions of the world as it is today. The women run off afraid. Perhaps you are the same. Are you afraid to believe that dawn has come, that a new world has broken out in the midst of the old, that heaven is possible? And if that's where you're at today, you're in good company. It's okay for us to live in that tension between, um, you know, heaven and earth, that the kingdom has already come, and yet the kingdom is also advancing. You are in good company if you feel that sense of disorientation or disillusionment. Are you dwelling in death? Are you accepting death? Are you allowing the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of the Christ, to draw you through death into new life? This perfect story only means something when you risk living it out. To be Christian is to be those who risk actually living the story, not simply Memorizing all the facts and doctrines and statements, but actually living as if this is true, in bearing witness and confessing to the reality of life, death, resurrection, God and humanity brought together in this one beautiful instant. It is only true if we risk living it. And so I want to invite you to stand with me. And we're going to confess using the words of the Nicene Creed. Again, from the fourth century. And we confess this not as doctrinal points to be memorized, but we confess this to say, this is the story that we believe makes sense of the world. This is the story that takes all of the chaos and brings order. This is the story that takes sin and death, passes through those things and over to overcome them, Uh, and bring us new life. and So we're going to confess the words of the Nicene Creed together and continue in worship. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God On the third day he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again. Sorry, I'll wait for you. Keep going. He'll come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit